Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Barry M. Cates about his new book, Make It New, The History of Silicon Valley Design. Barry M. Cates is Professor of Industrial and Interaction Design at California College of the Arts, Consulting Professor in the Design Group at Stanford University, and Fellow at IDEO Inc. He is the co-author of Change by Design with Tim Brown and Non-Object with Branko Lukic, which is published by the MIT Press. Barry Cates, thanks for uh, Barry Cates, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press podcast today. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Chris. Thank you for calling. Now, this book starts in the 1950s when tech firms that were in Sil- what is today Silicon Valley kind of shared space with farms and orchards. It was still pretty agricultural back then. Is it fair to say that those early for- firms were much more interested in engineering than design? Uh, not only is it fair to say that, um, I think it's probably fair to say that most of the technical community had no idea what design was. They almost never heard the word, and it meant very little to them. Um, I remember one particularly amusing incident that was described to me by the leader of one of uh, today's most prominent firms, Bob Bruner, who was also the first um, uh, director of industrial design at Apple, trying to describe to his father who was, uh, I believe, a lock an IBM engineer back in that period, what it was that he was going to be studying, namely industrial design. And his father, the engineer, said, industrial designs, oh, you guys spec the paint, and it usually peels off. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to the extent that design was a recognized phenomenon at all, um, it may have had some vague uh, reference to kitchen gadgets that were quote-unquote designed in Cincinnati or New York or Chicago or uh, perhaps um, uh, simply stuffing electronic components uh, in a more or less acceptable configuration into a sheet metal box. So short answer, um, uh, yes, it is absolutely fair to say that design was um, marginal and engineering was rapidly becoming everything. Where where did it actually start, the point where a firm or individual in Silicon Valley said, you know what, we really need to think a little bit more about how this technology is being presented because that would make it more valuable? Oh, I wish it were as conscious as that. I wish somebody woke up one morning and said, you know, we've got to pay more attention to design. Um, so there is a large arc to the story. But as a historian, I build it out of the actual concrete empirical details. And the detail is this. Far from a strategy, well, I'll, I'll say the company was Hewlett-Packard, um, which was um, uh, in the early 1950s a 250-person instrument firm in bucolic Palo Alto. And what actually happened was a guy by the name of Carl Clement drove down from... Um, uh, having recently completed an industrial design degree, one of the very few at the University of Washington. And his intention was to visit a roommate who was working at, at HP. And more or less on a whim, uh, his roommate persuaded him to bring along his portfolio, which he showed to an interviewer at HP, who looked at it, um, leafed through it, and said, industrial design, um, what is that? You couldn't cut it as an engineer? So <laughs> um, uh, what then happened was uh, the uh, uh, HP 
found a place for this guy working on the graphics on their cardboard shipping containers. And that is actually how design first came to Silicon Valley, which was not Silicon Valley yet. So far from being a conscious act or a conscious decision or a matter of policy on the basis of any of these companies, it happened in a purely accidental and contingent way and it built from there. And what, of course, is remarkable about this story is from uh, uh, such inauspicious beginnings, I'm pretty sure that uh, there are now more design professionals working in this region than anywhere else in the world. And one can think of it, I get a real sense from the book that not only are there more design professionals now in the Bay Area than any other place in the world, but as you point out, when this technology began to be developed really in the late 50s, early 60s, Design had, to, to a large degree, been centered either on the East Coast in North America or in Europe. And one of the problems I kind of gathered was that they could bring designers in from these areas, but the things they were making were so brand new that there really wasn't a, and it's a history of how to design for it. Is that accurate? And if so, how did these firms overcome the fact that they were bringing designers in to design things that had never been made before? Well, that part of the story happens uh, actually a little bit later. Um, during the first couple of decades, um, most of the designers, and I, you could almost literally count the numbers on the fingers of two hands. I mean, this is a tiny, tiny, uh, statistically completely insignificant community. One or two guys here, one or two guys there, uh, and I, uh, exactly one female, by the way, at IBM. Uh, in uh, the 60s. Um, and uh, by and large, they were simply packaging electronics. So there was um, very little uh, of what we think of as the design imagination at work there. Where things begin to heat up is actually at the point, and I guess we could say in the later 1970s and early 80s, that technical ideas began to move out of research and development environments, out of laboratories, and out of very technical places like Intel or Hewlett-Packard or IBM, and toward the consumer market. And that turns out to be the point at which designers have um, uh, an extremely important value to add. And the reason for that is, uh, quite honestly, if uh, an engineer is creating some uh, test and measurement uh, instrument for the use of another engineer. <clears throat> Design, in the way most of us think of it, is simply not a very important piece of the story. The electronics have to be packaged. Uh, the dials have to be uh, arrayed in a uh, meaningful and, and um, efficient manner. But if you're talking about um, a desktop computer that will be used by middle school teachers or by people running a small business or by graduate students in the humanities, let's say, to write their, their essays, design, not simply in the sense of how it looks, but the entire experience of using a product becomes a critical differentiator. So you did not choose which cell phone to buy on the basis of its technical specifications. You basically chose it on the basis of the experience you would have using it, and that is design. So what began to happen is I, as ideas, uh, and the personal computer is the clear embodiment of such an idea, began to spill out of labs and toward the market, 
uh, a small number and then a larger and larger number of designers uh, began to migrate toward the region to tackle some of the problems of turning technical artifacts into designed artifacts. So were these designers kind of, and I know there's a large ecosystem that designers had to start working with in the 80s, but when I think back about Silicon Valley in the 70s, obviously one of the most important and mythical projects was the Xerox PARC uh, research development in uh, Palo Alto. And is is it fair to say that to some degree, some of these early designers that we're talking about in the late 70s and early 80s are trying to figure out how to make the ideas that the Xerox Park people were coming up with and perhaps not utilizing to the extent they should be more palatable to the general public, whether it was a, on a consumer, straight to consumer or business as in, you know, selling to business offices. Yeah, actually not yet. It's a, it's a very pertinent question. Um, uh, Xerox Park, which is, as you say, an iconic, a legendary, um, uh, 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 laboratory of innovation uh, and continues to be today was um, a corporate research lab and what they were trying to do in 1972 when they began work on the computer system known as the Alto was to create a research prototype and they did in fact engage an industrial designer actually uh, it, it's a funny little story but it's the same guy that was uh, initially hired at Hewlett-Packard in 51. He had by this time split off from HP and founded his own uh, uh, very tiny consultancy, one of them maybe two, maybe three in the region. Uh, again, the number of designers could be counted at this point on one or two, the fingers of one or two hands. Uh, but his job was uh, basically to package the thing and you know to create a um, uh, a physical uh, case for the Alto, um, and there was really very little sense that this thing was ever um, uh, going to to become a product. Uh, that will happen later in Xerox, and then of course there's the famous visit, uh, not just of Steve Jobs, but actually of quite a few other young computer entrepreneurs of the late 70s to Xerox Park who began to see the commercial and the consumer potential of what Xerox had done. And as I say, that's the point where um, uh, the services of designers became absolutely critical. You mentioned Steve Jobs in that answer. And in the book, you say that he is the hinge of, to some degree, the story of design in the Valley. Why is Steve Jobs the hinge? Uh, yeah, I, I thought hard about how to capture that concept, and I'm, I'm satisfied with the way I put it, the hinge. And it's for the following reason. If you had asked almost any informed person uh, in, uh, I'll give you a target date, 1980, what are the world centers of design? I think there would have been a very easy consensus. Would have been Milan for furniture, Paris for fashion, uh, Southern California for entertainment, New York for graphics, perhaps London, Tokyo for electronics, and that's about it. With you know smatterings elsewhere in Ohio and in Chicago, and if you had said ah, and the San Francisco Bay Area, I believe that you would have been met with blank stares. Uh, it was a completely insignificant region for uh, design, and I don't think that there are too many people that would at that time have disputed that. So the uh, when I started work on this project I had kind of assumed that it all began when Steve Jobs um, uh, 
committed himself to a designed and not merely well-engineered product. And as I began scratching, I discovered that there were predecessors to that, and there was a long run-up that uh, made the Apple accomplishment possible. And in fact, Jobs shows up at exactly midpoint in the story and is anything but the, uh, the originating figure. But he's nonetheless probably the single most important person in the story for the simple reason that he accorded to design a position that it had not occupied, I believe, in any other major company and certainly not in any other technology company. And he was pretty clear about what he meant by it. It is not simply the shape of the box and the color and how it looks. But when he made the decision to sell a computer, this is the Apple IIc if anybody cares, uh, to sell it as in, in a sealed box, which doesn't sound like a very big deal, but it turns out to be fundamentally important, then all of the questions began to spill out. What should that box look like? What kind of a statement should it make? How approachable should it be? Uh, how should it be integrated into the environment in which it will be used? None of those sorts of questions were of any particular rele relevance in the pure tech industries prior to that. But when uh, Apple set out to make, you know, the phrase, quote-unquote, a computer for the rest of us, um, those issues became critical. So it's for that reason that I see him as the real turning point. And once uh, that gets established, uh, everything else kind of uh, falls into place after that. So he's obviously probably the best-known man in Silicon Valley who worked on or was had a focus on design. Is there a person in your story who believe is not as well known as they should be in the history of Silicon Valley design? Well, um, it, it's a very interesting question, and my my inclination, Chris, is probably to say no. Um, and that's for the following reason. Uh, the design culture of Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, is, uh, you kind of hinted in your, your first question, is fundamentally different from what we are familiar with in the East Coast of the U.S. and certainly in Europe, where we tend to think of the, the grand masters, these superstar designers. So we can name the half-dozen Italians who um, embody Italian design or some of the French or uh, whatever it might be. The vast majority of the work that is done in Silicon Valley is team-based and largely anonymous. I've heard some of my friends at IDEO make the, um, uh, make the witticism a little bit ironically that you can buy a computer that says Intel inside, but you can't buy one that says IDEO outside, even if people at IDEO worked on it. And that's very much the character of uh, uh, design projects here. It is not um, unheard of, but it is frankly very, very, very rare to be able to look at a product and say, this is the person who designed it. It's almost invariably going to be uh, a large group of people frequently working uh, in conditions of strict confidentiality and uh, protecting the intellectual property of their clients. And this is actually, it's, uh, it can be a problem, especially for some younger designers who would like to get their pictures on the magazine covers and uh, become known and become famous. But it's simply not the culture here. 
So my inclination is to answer your question in the negative. There are a couple of thousand design professionals working in the region. Um, I've had the honor and the privilege to get to know a great many of them. But uh, by and large, it's uh, the leaders of firms uh, rather than individual designers who become known. In your conclusion, you do talk a little bit, and people that have been, you know, people that read university press or business books know that one of the hot things the last few years has been design thinking, thinking like designers. And in the conclusion, I thought you put it really nicely that, you know, in a funny way, the designers who at the beginning of the story in the 50s weren't even on the radar of these individual companies in Silicon Valley are now to some degree being asked to run the conferences and come up with these grand ideas about how to move forward strategically or whatever. Are there concerns that maybe that pendulum swung too far the other way and people are so now enamored of the idea of design and design thinking that designers are being asked to do really more than they literally can, but just because people really like to see what they're going to do? Uh, yeah, I think it's a very perceptive question, uh, and both the uh, the critics and the advocates of this design thinking movement um, have uh, raised exactly that issue. As designers begin to tackle issues such as poverty or pediatric obesity or uh, the delivery of clean water in West Africa or um, urban violence as design problems, the question is um, uh, inevitably going to arise are they venturing into territory in which they have no uh, qualifications, in which they have no expertise, to put it bluntly, are they in way over their heads? And um, I think my answer to that, it's, it's got a number of parts to it, one of which is um, I think it's a very welcome phenomenon to see designers being asked to participate in discussions of large-scale social issues that really matter. This is what I tell my students. Stage one in any design project, choose a problem that matters, that you can get passionate about, and um, in which your work may make a truly positive difference to a significant number of people. Uh, design thinking, as it uh, becomes incorporated into um, uh, organizations, uh, large companies, uh, nonprofits, even government, my gosh, even the military is talking about design thinking these days. In that respect, it's a kind of a healthy uh, and stimulating phenomenon. Um, the danger is that it seems to me that a lot of people have gotten the idea that design thinking is uh, 10 rules or 6 rules or 5 principles that you can learn and then you too are a designer or at least a design thinker. And I think that is wildly exaggerated and potentially rather dangerous and misleading. Now, I think what it's really all about at the, uh, at the end of the day is that design has been um, forming itself as a profession for about 100 years, not a whole lot longer than that. And in the course of those 100 years, designers have learned some tricks, and some of those tricks are very, very powerful. Iterative prototyping, visualization, uh, the various modalities of design research. And some of those tricks can, in fact, be learned and applied by people who are not designers. And if that helps them appreciate uh, just how complicated the process of design actually is and bring professionally trained designers into their uh, process, I think that will be very healthy. But for Everybody to assume I can uh, read this book or learn these six tricks and therefore be a designer and we can do it ourselves. 
is probably not the way we want to go. Barry Cates, the author of Make It New, The History of Silicon Valley Design. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks very much. It's been lots of fun talking to you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.